support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. And this episode has more problems per minute than any other episode we've ever done. If you're a Decoder listener, it's a pretty short bet you've heard of Theranos and its charismatic, troubled founder, Elizabeth Holmes. Holmes convinced a long list of major investors and companies to give her huge amounts of money, all in the back of her claims that the Theranos technology could do hundreds of blood tests with just a tiny sample of blood. A pinprick. The Theranos testing machine was called the Edison, and it wasn't accurate, and in most cases, it didn't even work even though it was deployed in Walgreens locations around the country. All the while, Holmes was appearing on covers of magazines, signing more deals, and attracting greater and greater fame. The story is often seen as an example of arrogance in Silicon Valley, although it's obviously more complicated than that. But right now, Holmes is on trial in a criminal lawsuit brought by the federal government. The COO of Theranos and Holmes's one-time romantic partner, Sonny Balwani, will soon face his own trial on similar charges. Today, I'm talking to the guy who first exposed Holmes and Theranos and started this entire chain of events. John Carreyrou was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal in 2015 when he began publishing articles about how Theranos was misleading customers, partners, and investors. Theranos aggressively tried to kill John's reporting back then. High-powered lawyers threatened him and the journal, private investigators were deployed, sources were threatened, and Holmes even tried to get journal owner Rupert Murdoch, who was an investor in Theranos, to kill the story. Murdoch declined, and the stories have become a cautionary tale. You cannot just believe the hype. Carrie Root eventually wrote a book about Theranos called Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup, which is now being turned into a movie directed by Adam McKay and starring Jennifer Lawrence as Elizabeth Holmes. And he's currently hosting a podcast called Bad Blood, The Final Chapter, Time to Coincide with Holmes' Trial. I wanted to talk to John about the story and what it's been like to cover it for six years. He is as close to the Theranos story as any reporter can be to any story. He's even on the witness list for the trial, and he was put there by Elizabeth Holmes's lawyers. There's a lot to talk about with John. And because this is Decoder, we talked about what it's like for him to now be a podcast creator in addition to a journalist, how that part of his business is going and why he decided to put some of the episodes behind the Apple Podcast subscription system. You know I asked for the numbers. This is a fascinating conversation with one of the most impactful reporters of the past few years, John Carreyrou, host of Bad Blood, The Final Chapter. Here we go. John Carreyrou, you were an investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you broke the Theranos story. You're the author of Bad Blood, Secrets, and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup, a book about Theranos. And now you are the host of the podcast, Bad Blood, The Final Chapter, uh, which is coming out alongside the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO and founder of Theranos. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you. I feel like I followed your reporting. I've read the book, uh, listening to the podcast all excellent work. And I think a kind of a watershed moment in tech reporting and how the Valley perceives itself in relationship to the media. So I want to talk about all that, but let's start with the very beginning. I think a lot of listeners to the show are familiar with the Theranos story. They're familiar with what happened, but give us kind of the basics. In 2015, you 
put out a story saying the Theranos fingerprint test just didn't work. How did you come to that story? I had not heard of Elizabeth Holmes until uh, I read a profile of her in The New Yorker in mid-December 2014. At that point, she'd been raising her profile for about a year and a half in Silicon Valley and had become pretty well-known. There had been this iconic uh, cover story of her in Fortune magazine about six months prior. So she was becoming a celebrity, but this New Yorker story was the first time I'd ever heard of her. And I read the story with interest, commuting back from the the journal's offices in Midtown Manhattan to uh, where I lived in Brooklyn. As interesting as I found it, I also was immediately suspicious because this whole uh, conceit at the heart of the story that she was this college dropout who was revolutionizing this very technical corner of medicine, namely blood diagnostics, it didn't seem right to me. I'd been at that point covering medicine for 10 plus years, doing a lot of investigative reporting about healthcare and medicine. And I knew that science, you know, is hard and that it takes a long time. It's not like, you know, computer coding where, you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates before him learned how to code, you know, when they were in high school in their parents' basement. Uh, medicine uh, is not like that. You don't teach yourself medicine in your parents' basement. And so I, I was uh, suspicious about that. But to be fair, when I got off the subway and I got home, I put the story out of my ha- mind and kind of forgot about it. And it was a few weeks later that I got a tip from a pathologist in, in the Midwest who'd read the very same New Yorker story. And he'd been even more suspicious than me because he knew a lot about blood testing. He didn't believe, you know, this this idea that she had created this great invention that could do all these tests off a finger stick of blood. And and he and I had had dealings before. And so he called me up with a tip and I started digging from there. That that was the 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 inception of the whole thing. One of the things we, we talk about on this show a lot is, you know, there are products and then there are the enabling technologies that allow you to create the products. So the product for Theranos was this device called the Edison, which is what analyzed the extremely small amount of blood. Right. The enabling technology was the ability to do the tests on a small amount of blood, right? That was the claim. Actually, Elizabeth and Holmes and Theranos had not been uh, very transparent about what they were doing at all. It was very much a black box physically and figuratively. (laughs) But you know, what came out of all these uh, glowing interviews was that, uh, you know, she had a device that uh, could do hundreds of tests off a a pinprick of blood. And if that was true, that was a a real advance because, you know, up until that point, uh, no one had figured out how to do uh, more than a couple of blood tests off that small a volume of blood. There are two reasons for that. One is that there are about four big categories of blood tests. And when you do a couple tests from one category, you quickly exhaust your sample. And if you try to do uh, a few more from another category of blood tests, which require completely different methods and techniques, you don't have any sample left. Uh, no one had solved that problem. The other problem was the capillary blood, which is blood that you know comes from the finger, is not pure. It's, it's polluted by tissue and cells. And those interfere with certain tests like the potassium test. And no one had figured out how to solve for that either. So, you know, if what she was saying was true, it would have been a real medical advance. I mean, these are questions that you as a reporter, as pathologists who are writing you tips immediately leapt to. Obviously a huge part of the, the Theranos story, the reason they're in court now is investors gave her a lot of money. Why do you think those investors weren't asking the same questions, weren't asking for evidence that these tests could work the way that she was claiming they could? Well, I think you have to rewind the tape back to 2015. This was really, you know, the height of the unicorn boom to 2014-15. Facebook had made some people a ton of money, Twitter too. You had more and more of these private companies that were getting these billion-dollar valuations. In fact, interestingly, Theranos, for a short period of a couple of weeks, was the most valuable private startup in Silicon Valley. It was more valuable than Uber, Airbnb, or Spotify. I think investors wanted to join the next rocket ship to riches. And um, as a result, they kind of suspended this belief and were less careful. You know, this is before the, the backlash against tech. 
there was less skepticism back then. Um, and to be fair, she was an incredibly compelling saleswoman. I mean, she had an amazing charisma. She is very smart. She's a, a chameleon, a fantastic actress. And I think she charmed the socks off uh, a lot of these investors. And, and they really, really believed her. I've always been stuck on that. And, you know, I would... I run a tech site. We were operative in 2014 and 15. I often think that we would have written the Theranos story that Fortune or anybody, the New Yorker wrote. She made the claim the product didn't exist yet. She was a very compelling figure. But at the heart of it is kind of a very simple math problem. You've got a tiny amount of blood. Everything suggests that if you run these tests, you're going to just run out of blood. How did you solve that problem? And I've never seen any part of the Theranos marketing materials or Holmes presentations or interviews where that question was addressed. Right. And, and I think the reason that the journalists who covered her in those initial two years and wrote the, the glowing profiles didn't pick up on that is they didn't come from a medical reporting background. You know, they accepted the way she framed herself, which was as a tech entrepreneur who was following in the footsteps of these other legendary tech entrepreneurs, you know, Steve Jobs in particular, who she idolized and, and whom she dressed like. And, you know, reporters who were used to covering tech accepted, yeah, they, they accepted that she was a tech entrepreneur when in fact she was a medical entrepreneur. It didn't take me long after, you know, the initial tip and then doing some digging within a few weeks, I got the laboratory director of Theranos who had just left the company on the phone and granted him confidentiality. And he started confiding in me a bunch of things that he'd seen, a bunch of problems. Didn't take me long after that to just reach out to the heads of pathology departments at universities to run by them Holmes's claims. And I found out that quietly, a lot of people in the pathology community had, had been extremely suspicious and skeptical because they didn't think it was physically possible. So it, it wasn't hard to find uh, people to explain to me, you know, why, why this was probably not true. That skepticism is a dynamic that, you know, we all live with now. There has been a giant backlash to tech companies and then we've all learned to be more skeptical of their claims uh, and what they, they promise they will deliver. But the back and forth is the skepticism is unwarranted. We're doing things that are hard. We might fail, but we have to try risky things in order to have the big innovation. That was basically Theranos' defense against your story. They, I, I realized they brought lawyers to you. They wanted to sue the journal. They, they won all out. But the core of the public defense was we're innovating, we're taking risks, we're going to fail, but if you believe in us, we'll succeed. How has that dynamic changed as we've kind of entered the trial phase? I think this is where this story is so important. This is where the trial is so important. There's this culture of faking it until you make it in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I'll be the first to grant you that a little bit of that is necessary to raising money. You need to hype and perhaps exaggerate a little bit to get people excited. You need to be, if you're an entrepreneur, you need to be super optimistic. You need to get your employees excited. You need to get investors excited about your vision. But I think there's a line not to cross. And I think uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos crossed that line when the hyping and the exaggerating turned into outright lying. And it turned into outright lying for years and years. And it was lying to the point that she went live with uh, blood tests that she knew were flawed. And she knew she was conducting a giant, you know, experiment on, on patients. I think this trial is going to be a referendum on, on whether, you know, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley can keep getting away with that sort of behavior. If she's convicted, I think it'll be a wake-up call for the Valley that, you know, no. That was taking things uh, one step too far. And that if you do the same, then, you know, you're looking at prison time. If she's acquitted, then I think all bets are off. I think you'll have young entrepreneurs running around the valley saying, yeah, you know, I'm lying, I'm exaggerating, I'm pushing the envelope. But look at what Elizabeth got, Elizabeth Holmes got away with. And she didn't spend a day in jail. So I think I'll be okay. Where do you think the, the line specifically was? Was it 
famously, they, they had bought other testing devices from Siemens and other companies and tried to modify them. They'd signed a deal with Walgreens. Where do you think the line was specifically? The biggest line was, you know, going live, commercializing blood tests and having real patients use them when you know that the tests are flawed and you know that your Edison machine is unreliable, that you're only doing a handful of tests with that. And that for the rest of the tests, you've hacked, you know, a third party machine called the Siemens Advia 1800 and you're diluting blood samples to make it work because the Siemens Advia being a regular commercial blood analyzer requires a certain sample size and you can't meet that sample size unless you dilute the blood and diluting the blood causes all sorts of problems because there's already a dilution step in the Siemens Advia's protocol. So then you're double diluting and you're increasing, you know, the chance for errors. And that's exactly what happened. A lot of patients got erroneous blood tests. And we're now hearing from some of these patients at trial. You know, we heard earlier this week or, or late last week from a patient who got a, an erroneous pregnancy result. Uh, Theranos told her twice that she was no longer pregnant when in fact her pregnancy was perfectly viable and, you know, she carried it to term. So, I mean, that's the big bright red line not to cross when you're lying to the point that you're putting people's lives in jeopardy. And, you know, I think that applies to other industries that, that Silicon Valley has set its sights on. It's not just healthcare, it's also self-driving. There have been car accidents involving Teslas where it looks like drivers have been lulled into thinking that, you know, they, they can let the car drive itself when, when in fact, you know, the, the software isn't as reliable as, as Musk would have you believe it. And some of these accidents have been fatal. There's also been a woman who's been run over by a, an Uber self-driving vehicle uh, in Tampa, uh, Arizona a couple of years ago, and, and she died. I think this, this has broader lessons for Silicon Valley as it gets into these other areas, as it goes beyond just the bread and butter computer industry and sets its sights on artificial intelligence, healthcare, drones, uh, driverless vehicles, there, there are lines not to cross. The right red line between hyping your product for investors in that stage and commercializing dangerous products or unreliable products, I understand. The step for Theranos to get to commercialization was to sign deals with pharmacies, famously Walgreens. General Mattis was at the trial this week he wanted to deploy the machines in the armed forces. That seems like at least a, for me, a, a gating step where Walgreens should have seen if the machine worked, where Mattis should have had the machine tested more thoroughly. Why didn't that happen here? I mean, for sure, Walgreens should have done its due diligence more. I did hire, as I uh, wrote in my book, a lab consultant named Kevin Hunter, who worked uh, for a period of time for Walgreens full-time vetting, you know, Theranos. And early on, you know, he smelled a rat and he tried to alert his superiors at Walgreens and Elizabeth and Sonny were able to freeze him out of meetings. And uh, after a few months, you know, he was no longer included in the Zoom, the weekly Zoom calls they had and then the meet in-person meetings they had. And so Walgreens uh, was ignoring its own consultant whom it had hired and was paying, you know, decent money to look after its own interests. It's one of the uh, most unbelievable parts of the story uh, when you look back. And, and then the investors, the investors should have done more due diligence for sure. The board members, the, the board members were, were asleep at the switch. In some cases, they were literally asleep. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I heard from people who attended board meetings that uh, uh, Kissinger and, uh, and George Schultz would sometimes doze off during board meetings. So um, there's a lot of blame to lay around. There's a lot of due diligence that should have been done by various parties that wasn't done. Is there a chance they could have figured this out if this thing had just kept rolling? There's an element of your story, the first one in the journal, that has always felt inevitable, right? The, the tests are producing inaccurate results. The results are not the same for all kinds of people. Eventually, doctors pharmacists, Walgreens, people are going to figure this out and maybe shut this down in some other way. It, it would have come out because the thing wasn't working. But is there a chance they could have pulled it off? 
I think the scandal would have exploded one way or another. I think I hastened it, but I, I think that within a year or two, this would have come to light because there would have been more and more people getting tests from Theranos, more and more complaints. At some point, someone would have gone to another reporter or to a regulator, and that this house of cards would have come tumbling down. But I think from Elizabeth's vantage point, her bet was that she was eventually going to get there. She was going to get the last iteration of her device to work. And that by then, you know, no one would be the wiser. The workaround with the hacked Siemens Advia, the malfunctioning Edisons, that no one would know about these things because uh, she would have eventually gotten there. And, and I think she was deluded because uh, I don't think she was ever going to get there. First, the, you know, we, we talked about the, the technical limitations that to this day are still making this impossible. And believe me, there are a lot of people working on this problem. It's not just Theranos um, trying to solve it. But then there's also the, the culture of the company and the way she managed the company, the way she and Sonny Balwani managed the company. It was a completely dysfunctional place. There was a huge amount of turnover. Sonny was firing people all the time. It was a very toxic culture. And you don't come up with great innovations. You don't succeed as a company with that sort of culture. So I think this company was doomed no matter what. This is another constant thread of conversation in the Valley, particularly with female founders. People are often harsher on female founders for being demanding or tough and that to start a company and make things great and create a vision, you have to be really tough. You have to be extraordinarily demanding. I think maybe the scandal would have broken on its own because the test results weren't accurate. What we would not have ever learned about was the, culture of the company that was really exploited in your reporting really came out in the book. Is it a case that she was just as demanding as everyone else, but her product was a fraud or is it a case where she was that demanding to cover up the fraud? She's an interesting character. If you try to psychoanalyze her, you know, I've often said in interviews, I really don't believe that she dropped out of Stanford at age 19 in 2003, intending to commit a long con intending to commit fraud. No, she dropped out because, you know, she idolized Steve Jobs and other Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. She wanted to follow in their footsteps. She had a vision. She pursued her vision. She hired people uh, and, you know, raised money, et cetera, did what entrepreneurs do. I think at, at a certain point, she did know that she was going too far. If you listen to my podcast, there's an episode about this note she wrote to herself in 2014 as she's being asked repeatedly by a prospective investor, Byron Trott of BDT Capital, this big merchant bank in Chicago for audited financials. She knows she doesn't have audited financial statements to show him. You know, the stresses are out. And late one night at like four in the morning, she writes a note to herself. And in the middle of the note are these lines, smart people picked off Mado, not you. And if you listen to the, to this, episode of my podcast, I think I make a compelling case that um, this was a reference to Bernie Madoff and that she's comparing herself to Bernie Madoff. To me, that indicates consciousness of guilt, uh, that she wasn't just at that point an idealistic, hard-driving entrepreneur who was you know, shooting for the moon and putting a lot of pressure on her employees uh, to make her vision happen. I think she also knew at that point that she was lying to investors, that the gap at that point between what she'd promised them and what she told them she'd achieved and, and what the truth was, was a yawning, yawning gap and that it couldn't be reconciled. And I think she knew that. There was a, a story in the New York Times recently about other women founders in the hard sciences, bio, climate, et cetera, who are finding it harder to get funded because of the legacy of Elizabeth Holmes. How do you think this trial is going to affect that dynamic? Because that to me is... I don't think Elizabeth Holmes wanted that to happen, but it is a clear dynamic that is happening now. Investors in general have been burned. They are more skeptical, hopefully, as a result. But we are seeing, in particular, that skepticism pointed at other female founders. Well, if that's happening, I think it's really unfair. Why should women uh, be singled out? This was just one bad apple. I think we've been used to frauds being carried out by men because, you know, uh, the history of capitalism is dominated by men, and, and it's only been recently that uh, women are taking a, a bigger role in business and entrepreneurship. 
that, that's going to continue. We're going to see more and more women become founders and CEOs and successful entrepreneurs. And there's bound to be bad apples among women too, just like there are among, among men. But that doesn't mean that uh, it should penalize women as a gender. Uh, it certainly uh, hasn't penalized men. So, um, you know, I, it, that does, really doesn't make sense to me. And, and I really don't think it should be happening. Before this criminal trial that is occurring right now, there have been some civil lawsuits from investors. Give us the recap of those. I, it feels like investors are, are very reticent to sue, but they obviously did sue in this case. How did those go? Do, they, do you think they provided any disincentive from this kind of lying? The first investor to sue was Partner Fund Management, which is a, a hedge fund based in San Francisco, which had invested $96.1 million in Theranos. And they brought their suit pretty quickly and resolved it pretty quickly, reached a, a settlement for $43.5 million with Theranos in the spring of 2016. Um, so, Where did that money come from? I've always wondered this. Well, when I came out with my first story in late 2015, uh, Theranos still had something like six or $700 million in the bank. It had a ton of money left. And a lot of that money uh, from that point on went to paying lawyers and went to paying for legal settlements. Another investor that brought suit was a former investment banker named Robert Coleman. His suit took longer to resolve. He uh, eventually reached a, a settlement and was made whole. There was a lawsuit filed by Walgreens. Theranos also settled that one, I think, for $30 million, but then ended up not paying the whole sum and was sued again. There were uh, about a dozen uh, suits filed by patients in Arizona that were consolidated into a class action. So there were a lot of lawsuits. I think that they definitely helped the government investigation with all the discovery you know, they called it very much called attention to what Theranos had done. And, and I'm not sure that prosecutors would have brought the criminal case if it hadn't been for all these other uh, private actions, especially uh, PFM's lawsuit in Delaware. I think they got a ton of information from that lawsuit. And I think that lawsuit and, and PFM were, were instrumental in getting the criminal case off the ground. That connection between the investor suing the civil cases, the settlements, and the criminal case, why do you think the government wasn't hot on the trail already? Why do you think it took that set of civil cases? Well, the, the SEC subpoenaed Theranos within a week of my first story in October uh, 2015, so it didn't take them very long to start an investigation. It took uh, DOJ a little bit longer. The first subpoena landed in, I think, early January of 2016, uh, right after another big story, a big expose I'd, I'd uh, written on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And then, you know, I think it took a while for those probes. Uh, this was a complex set of circumstances. Uh, it involves lab testing. You know, it's complicated. And uh, this was also the San Francisco U.S. attorney. This wasn't the Southern District in Manhattan, uh, which has huge resources and, and uh, you know, really uh, smart and talented young prosecutors. And, and they're usually the ones that go after high-profile white-collar crime cases. This was the San Francisco U.S. attorney's office, which is much smaller, much fewer resources, has had, you know, a mixed record if you go back a decade and look at their how they fared um, with the, the option backdating investigations. They didn't do very well. And so uh, this was a really high-profile case handled by a small office, and I think uh, they took their time to get it right. And eventually, you know, after three years of investigating, they did bring charges. They did bring criminal charges. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about how Elizabeth Holmes's trial is going. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. 
If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs. Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers. Search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back with John Carrier. We're a couple weeks into the trial. The jury has been selected. There have been opening arguments. We're starting to hear testimony from witnesses. Explain what this trial looks like. Elizabeth Holmes is having one trial. Her partner, in all senses of the word, Sonny Balwani, is having a, a different trial. They're both being criminally prosecuted. What is Holmes on trial for? What is Sonny on trial for? So they've been charged with uh, 10 counts of wire fraud and two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Why wire fraud? Because it's actually uh, a very easy charge to prove. Basically, all you need to show to the jury is that, you know, Elizabeth and Sonny were lying when they solicited money from investors and got them to wire this money across state lines to Theranos' bank account. The other uh, aspect of these wire charges uh, is actually a little bit more unusual. It involves the blood test results that were wired electronically across state lines from, from uh, California to Arizona. That's something you don't see as often. So, you know, why is Elizabeth being tried now and, and why is Sonny uh, not there with her in the courtroom? Well, actually, that's because, uh, as we learned recently, part of her defense is going to involve blaming Sonny and alleging that he uh, abused her, that he held her in his psychological grip, uh, effectively de depriving her of free will and, and agency. And uh, as a result, the judge had no uh, choice but to sever their cases so Sonny is going to be tried early next year. This is going to be, I think, one of the pivotal aspects of the trial. Uh, and I think, by the way, she's going to testify because for the jury to believe this, I think they're going to want to hear more from more than just her psychologist. They're going to want to hear from her. And I think her defense team realizes that. And, and they've already pretty much telegraphed that she's going to testify. And this is going to be a really pivotal moment. Uh, at the trial because she's a great actress. Uh, she's shown in spades that she can get people to believe her. And I expect her to go on the stand and, you know, play the part of this naive young woman who was manipulated by this older man. And the question is going to be, is the jury going to go for it? Is it the jury going to believe it? Is it going to go for it to the, to the extent of, um, you know, excusing everything else, it, basically to the, to the extent of discarding all that mountain of evidence that the prosecution uh, will have presented it. Uh, I think the trial could very much ride on that. It's going to be fascinating. You've been to the courthouse already. You've seen the trial take shape over the first few days. What's the mood of the trial? Does it feel like the prosecution is already ahead because the story is so famous? Or is Holmes and her team mounting an effective defense? You know, it's interesting. The trial's taking place in San Jose, which, uh, not to offend anyone in Silicon Valley, uh, is kind of a sleepy, sleepy city. It's not San Francisco. It's certainly not New York. I, I've covered trials, white-collar criminal trials in New York. And, you know, you have these, these uh, century-old uh, court buildings and these cavernous courtrooms. And this is like this modern courthouse that was uh, built in 1990. The, the courtroom is pretty small. It, it feels very cramped in there. The jurors are not 
uh, very far from Elizabeth. They're like a couple arms lengths away from her. Uh, some of the uh, jury spills out of the jury box because of the COVID protocols, because of the social distancing. As far as how it's going, I thought I was there for opening statements. I thought the prosecution did a decent job of explaining what happened. Uh, I thought the defense lawyer, uh, Lance Wade, was very polished in his opening statement in humanizing Holmes and in raising some of the lines of defense, such as the fact that she never sold a single share of stock. So how could this be a fraud if the main perpetrator of this fraud never profited? He also planted the seeds of the what I call the Svengali defense, you know, which, which is going to be blaming Sonny, uh, saying that Sonny was the villain. But in, in recent weeks, since opening statements, I think uh, if I had to handicap it right now, I think the, the prosecution is ahead because the, the evidence is beginning to mount. We've heard from whistleblowers. We heard from Erica Chung, who's actually a source of mine at the Journal, who testified about how she tried to alert a lot of people to the unreliability of the blood test. Uh, we heard from another woman who was head of assay validation who'd worked there for eight years and who resigned right before they went live with the blood tests because uh, she had major misgivings about the reliability of the blood tests. And she told Elizabeth uh, so in a one-on-one -on -one meeting. Uh, we've heard from uh, General Mattis about how he, you know, he initially thought that this had huge promise and uh, gradually he lost faith in Elizabeth and the company. And today on the stand, uh, there's the lab director. I think he's going to be a really important witness. So I think that, you know, all the government's evidence is really starting to amass. And by the end of the trial, I think it's going to be hard for the defense to account for all of it. You've obviously been as deep in the story as anyone can possibly be for years. There's a mountain of evidence of texts, of notes you've mentioned, emails, marketing presentations, financial statements, whatever you can think of. Some of it's allowed and some of it isn't. How is that breaking down? You know, mo most of it is coming in, actually. At one point, uh, a couple of months ago, the defense had objected to the texts coming in saying that the government hadn't proved that they were authentic. And so the government went back and found the PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, forensic security expert who'd actually taken Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani's phones and, and, and basically made tapes of them. And he was a witness who was called to the stand this week. And, and uh, the prosecutors had him read the texts to the jurors. And I'm told by my colleague, Emily Saul, who's in the courtroom, uh, that they were riveted by these texts. So the texts are in. The, the, the defense also tried to uh, repeatedly get uh, the testimony from patients and from doctors excluded to no avail. The only thing the judge agreed to do was to uh, limit the patient's testimony to the, the facts, to basically, you know, the blood test results that they got from Theranos and the subsequent blood tests they got from elsewhere that showed that the Theranos results were, were false. Uh, the patients are not able to testify about the emotional turmoil they experienced from, from uh, their inaccurate tests. But other than that, the, the judge is letting a lot of what the prosecution uh, wants to come in, in, and that's a real problem for the defense. And that limitation on the, the patients is so funny to me because it assumes the jury has no human empathy. Like, if you hear a woman say, this test told me my pregnancy was going to miscarry, and that was a lie, you don't really need her to finish the thought of that made me feel bad. Right. I, I'm wondering why they fought over that. Because they, I, the defense is deathly s afraid that these uh, sob stories are going to you know, prejudice the jury against Elizabeth Holmes. And they want to keep that testimony from, from each of those patients very short. And they then want to counter it by saying that you know, these are just a handful of patients and that there are no conducted more than 8 million blood test results and that the government is only, you know, presenting 20 or so uh, patients with erroneous results. Of course, the, the government will be able to re rebut that by pointing to the fact that Theranos had to avoid nearly a million blood test results after um, the federal inspectors went in and found all the problems at the lab. But yeah, you're right. I think the, the jurors are not dumb. You know, they can read between the lines when... Uh, a patient, uh, one of the patients that is going to testify had a 
false HIV result from Theranos telling her she had AIDS when in fact she didn't. All it's going to take for jurors to put themselves in her shoes and, and to be appalled is, is going to be just to hear that she got a false HIV result. They don't, they don't need to hear her say, you know, how she spent weeks agonizing over this before she could afford to get retested. They'll know that, that that's outrageous. And I think uh, that's a real problem for the defense. Do you anticipate being called as a witness? You're a central character in this tale. I actually do, um, but ironically, I don't expect to be called by the prosecution because I'm not on their um, witness list. I am, however, on the defense's witness list. I'm number six on the defense's witness list. And so I'm expecting a subpoena any day, and I'm expecting the defense to call me during their case in chief. And if that happens, I think they will try to make the case that, that one of the lines of defense will be that Carrie Rue was this rabid reporter who had it in for Elizabeth Holmes, that this was a witch hunt, that he uh, contacted regulatory agencies and biased them, that they um, went in and inspected and, and came down more harshly on Theranos than they might otherwise have because of my intervention and because of my reporting. I think there's only so far you can go with this line of defense because ultimately when the regulators went in, they found what they found. I had nothing to do with what they found on the ground in that facility in Newark, California, and at Theranos headquarters in Palo Alto. I'm skeptical that it's going to work. And then if, you, if you're the defense and you call me to the stand, then you open the door to the prosecution to, to ask me questions and to elicit from me testimony about what I went through uh, when I tried to expose the scandal and you know the, the scorched earth campaign that, that uh, Theranos conducted to try to quash my story, the way they hired private investigators to follow my sources, uh, the, the way um, David Boys and Heather King, the Theranos general counsel, sent threatening letters to me and to the journal, threatening to sue us, the way Sonny flew out to Phoenix to intimidate doctors who'd spoken to me on the record to try to get him to recant, the way Elizabeth privately lobbied Rupert Murdoch, who obviously owns the journal and who was a big Theranos investor, to kill my story. Uh, I think, you know, the defense will open the door to all of that being talked about if they call me to the stand. So I think it's risky. It's always been interesting to me that Rupert Murdoch, in the context of this story, comes off as having a very high set of ideals about journalism. Because it, you know, he, is, he was an investor in Theranos, but he did not do anything at the journal as far as I've heard or has otherwise been reported. That's right. He had invested $125 million in Theranos. I actually didn't know this when I was reporting my story. And uh, I only found out about it a year after my first Theranos story was published. And it's true. He did not intervene. So, um, you know, this is not to uh, absolve him uh, completely, you know, but certainly in the case of Theranos, you know, he behaved really well as a, as a uh, steward of the paper. I want to talk about Sonny real quick. His name has come up several times. He's always being tried separately. Holmes is going to make this Svengali defense. Who is Sonny? What, what is he like? And do you buy this Svengali defense? Sonny is a Pakistani guy who came to the U.S. in the 80s during college and stayed and made a career in Silicon Valley. He worked for 10 years at Lotus and Microsoft. And then he joined a, uh, an e-commerce startup in the late 90s at the top of the dot-com bubble. He and his partner sold it for a lot of money and he cashed out. Uh, and then a couple years later, he met Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, they were both part of a uh, Stanford uh, Mandarin program. So they met in Beijing on this program and then they kept in touch. And when she dropped out of Stanford a year and a half later, in late 2003, she got back in touch with him and he gave her advice. He became sort of a mentor. Eventually that morphed into a romantic relationship. And uh, in 2009, uh, about five years into the life of Theranos, Theranos was running out of money. Sonny stepped in and guaranteed a bank loan with his personal wealth. And at that point he joined the company. And from 2009 onwards, he uh, helped run the company and, and they really ran the company as a partnership. Uh, he was the COO and president while she was CEO. I don't buy their line of defense that he was her Svengali, that he manipulated her, that, that you know, 
she was under his psychological grip. The texts don't back it up. The dozens and dozens of employees I interviewed for the book and for the podcast uh, who worked with them say that, you know, this was a partnership of equals. And if anyone had the last say, it was Elizabeth. And that she was firmly in control of the company. Let's not forget, she had 99.7% of the voting rights. She was the founder and CEO. This was her company. Was Sonny influential? Sure. Did he uh, help her run it? Sure. But did was he the puppeteer and was she the puppet? No, I don't buy that. They were romantically involved as well, yeah. They were romantically involved. They lived together in a big house Sonny owned in Atherton. So yeah, they were. it was a, a partnership at work and it was a partnership at home. They were sleeping together. And he's much older than her. He's 19 years older. So this is particularly dicey territory in the context of this trial, right? He is older man, a younger woman. There is an enormous amount of contextual strife about women founders, women executives in tech in particular. Her defense cuts against the entire grain of women in leadership positions. She's saying, I was controlled by this older man. Do you think that works here? It completely contradicts her demeanor. And by the way, you know, prosecutors are going to play videos of her at the height of her fame uh, when, you know, she was speaking to audiences and uh, looking incredibly confident and self-possessed. The jury is going to see those those videos. And I think it's going to be extremely hard to reconcile this new image she's trying to put forth uh, with what they'll see on their video screen. The other really dicey thing about this is that she's basically accusing a brown man of uh, sexually and psychologically abusing her, and he's not there to defend himself. Who knows how that plays with with the jury? It's, uh, yeah, it's really sensitive stuff. One of the things that has occurred to us as we were preparing for this interview is she's going to blame Sonny and say that it was all his fault and he was the puppet master and she might get acquitted. And then Sonny's going to have a trial and say, I was under her spell. She was this radiant, compelling figure. And then he's going to get acquitted and then no one is responsible. Is that a possibility here? It's certainly a possibility. You never know with a jury trial. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I still think the odds are that, that she gets convicted. And I think in some ways the case is even stronger against him uh, because he directly oversaw the lab and he was the one who... Uh, interacted, you know, directly with some of the whistleblowers. And so she's a little bit more insulated than he is. I think he's going to have a tougher time uh, rebutting all the government's evidence, you know. So I, I think it. what would be more realistic is that she gets acquitted and he gets convicted rather than both of them get acquitted. But when I look at all that government evidence, I still think that both of them get convicted. All right, we're going to take another break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask John about his new podcast. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. So here's a question I've been dying to ask you this entire time. You started reporting this story in 2015. You have experienced every up and down from high-powered lawyers marching into the offices of the Wall Street Journal to, to yell at your employers and try to shut this down, to the first story breaking, which must have been an emotional high, to the book coming out, to now there's investigations and lawsuits. There's a trial. Now you're doing a podcast about it. Are you tired of this? You know, part of me is tired of this story. Um, It's consumed the past six and a half years of my life, and I am eager for it to be over. Um, uh, You know, I want this trial to be over. I want want to have closure. Uh, I want to see justice done. At the same time, I feel like I opened this can of worms. I started this. I felt like I owed it to myself to 
cover the story until the end. I felt like I owed it not just to myself, but to everyone who's been following the story. I owed it to them to cover it. And since I'd left the Wall Street Journal, I felt like the best medium to do that was a podcast. And so uh, hence the podcast and hence the name of the podcast, Bad Blood, the final chapter. This is the final chapter of this story that I was not able to write when I wrote the book because its events hadn't happened. And I'm writing it now, or rather I'm narrating it uh, now in the podcast. What have you learned that has changed your opinion of the events of the book or has reinforced those things? There's nothing that's materially changed the arc of the story that I told in the book, um, but I have gotten my hands on a lot more documents and emails and texts. A lot of them are SEC case exhibits that I got my hands on. They only make it worse. They only make it clear to me that, that uh, there was indeed fraud here and that she was indeed lying to investors. For instance, I'd heard a small investor who invested in Theranos, and actually he was a, a character in the book, had told me, you know, he heard from the, the head of the, the VC firm he invested in, Don Lucas, that Elizabeth was saying that the Theranos machines were being used by the military in the field. So I knew that from talking to him when I was writing the book, but I didn't know she was saying this to virtually everyone. She was saying it to the CEO of Safeway, uh, Steve Bird, she was saying this to the CFO, and Sonny was saying it too to the CFO of Walgreens. Uh, there's uh, government evidence now that shows that uh, at one point they're uh, walking around Theranos headquarters, and Sonny points out one of the Edison devices to Wade Mikulon, the the Walgreens CFO, and tells him that's the model that's on the uh, Apache helicopter in Afghanistan. She was telling this to investors, to, to uh, uh, Betsy DeVos's people, to uh, a hospital chain called Dignity Health. When I was writing the book, I didn't quite know the extent of the lying. And it's now become uh, more apparent to me, um, you know, with all the evidence that's come out. You have an interesting podcast strategy here. There's Bad Blood, the final chapter, which is a free podcast that everyone can go listen to. It's great. You should listen to it. Then you have what happened today in court, which is a paid product. How did you make that decision? Well, early on, we decided that we wanted to do a narrative uh, podcast, you know, with high production values. And we wanted, you know, if possible, not to just regurgitate the book, but to really add new elements, break news. At the same time, we knew that people uh, would want to know what happened uh, during the trial. And so uh, the, the system we came up with is a free podcast with, that uh, should be composed by the end of 12 episodes that are scripted and that are um, narrative-based, and then uh, bonus episodes that come out every Monday that are called This Week in Court that recap what went on in court that week. That way, you get the, the best of both worlds. And um, so far, it's been really successful. Do you have any numbers to share with us or, or lots of people buying the, the paid podcast? Uh, I, not even, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but um, the narrative podcast, the, the one that's free is approaching 2 million downloads and we've got about 6,000 subscribers to the bonus episodes who are paying $3.99 a month for that uh, premium content. It's tough being on the other side of the reporter's questions, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it is. Well, I, you know, the reason I ask is, you know, we talked to a lot of creators on the show. We talked to a lot of media people. You know, Adam McKay is making a movie starring Jennifer Lawrence based on your book. You're one of the writers of this movie. What you have here is like a extraordinarily valuable piece of intellectual property that just happens to be what is now becoming a true crime story. And I, I'm wondering if you are thinking about it that way or if you are a journalist who's because the story is so sensational, being thrust into a world of entertainment. Yeah, I mean, you make a great point. Um, this story has just fascinated people for five, six years now. It's It just seems to never stop fascinating people. It, it also doesn't seem to stop. I mean, the wheels of justice turn very slowly in this case, and it's only now that the trial is happening. So that's sort of expensive. Ex handed the, the lifespan of this story. It's been really uh, strange, you know, good in many ways. Uh, it's sort of like a franchise at this point. But 
yeah, part of me is, is kind of, you know, hoping that it ends soon so, so that I can move on to something else finally. Is that in your plan? I mean, one of the questions I, I've always had for people in, in this situation is you have been very successful with this. The book was successful. One anticipates the Jennifer Lawrence movie will be successful. I'm assuming, you know, the podcast seems like it's successful. Are you done? Do you have a next project in your head after this? Or are you, you're just moving to a place without blood testing at all and you're just going to wrap it up? Yeah. I mean, after the podcast, I'm done. I'm not doing any more uh, Theranos related projects and sure, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll consult on the movie and, and, uh, I have high hopes for it. And so I'll be watching that closely. But, um, after that I'm done, I want to, I want to do something else. I, I don't want to be pigeonholed as, as the Theranos reporter, uh, for my entire career. I I'd like to do other things. And, and, uh, that may be, you know, writing another book probably involves doing more journalism, but yeah, after this podcast, I'm done. So you were an investigative reporter at the wall street journal, which I think it is fair to characterize as one of the most traditional newsrooms in media with literally one of the most traditional distribution channels, a print newspaper in a paywall digital product. When this is all over and you think about doing journalism again, are you going to go back to the traditional newsroom? Have you learned something about where journalism should go now? How does that look to you? You know, I, I don't know what the future is made of at this point. I do feel like I am a journalist at heart, and um, I'd like to perhaps write another book. If I do another book, it'll be a nonfiction book. Uh, it'll be a journalistic book. If I do another podcast, it'll be a nonfiction. It'll be journalism so I feel like whatever it is that comes next will be a, an extension of my journalism career. It, it may not be as traditional as working for an, an, an old line newspaper, but you know I think that training has served me well, and I think it's what I'm good at doing, reporting. And so I, you know, I intend on continuing to report. Do you have any projects in your in the back of your mind that you're thinking, oh, that's the next one? I've got some ideas. They're they're not well formed yet. I think it would be premature to get into any of them. But um, I'll, I'll talk about it when I'm ready. Um, it's you're it's, not trying to tip off your targets. I know what you're doing. <laughs> I'm being cagey. Uh, what's next in the in the Holmes trial and in, in the Holmes story? What people are watching this. Our deputy editor Liz Lapato is at that trial. She's going to be there for months. It seems like you're doing this podcast, we're going to see the conclusion, then Sonny's going to be on trial. But for people who are kind of casually watching this, what are the moments to look out for? This week, uh, today, and, and potentially going into next week, the lab director, uh, I think he's going to be a crucial uh, government witness. I think it's also going to be interesting to see how the defense tries to impeach him. I think one of the many lines of defense is going to be that, uh, you know, he was the guy that Elizabeth trusted to make sure you know things in the lab were under control. And so to the extent that they weren't, then it's his fault, it's not her fault. You know, another important moment I think is gonna be uh, Brian Grossman. He is uh, the portfolio manager at uh, Partner Fund, the, the San Francisco hedge fund that sued Theranos. He took notes uh, during his meetings with Elizabeth and Sonny. He actually did do a fair amount of due diligence and uh, I expect his testimony to potentially be devastating. He's a smart guy. I think he's articulate. And I think he's going to spell out uh, exactly the ways in which Elizabeth lied uh, to the jury. I'll be interested to see if uh, Rupert Murdoch <laughs> is a witness. I'll be fascinated to see whether uh, David Boyce gets called to the stand, whether Heather King, uh, his former uh, law firm partner who for a year there was Theranos' general counsel, who I did battle with, whether she's going to go on the stand and what they all have to say. And then, of course, you know, the big moment is going to be if and when Elizabeth testifies. I think that is going to make for amazing theater. Uh, that's, a, that's a Hollywood, speaking of Hollywood, that's going to be a Hollywood moment. Yeah. Well, John Carreau, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for John Carreyrou for taking the time to talk today, and thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. 
If you like the show, please share it with your friends, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you really like it, leave us a five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. We are edited by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.